on the, the numbers at all. And I think the second you kind of focus on numbers and growth and that being your intention, especially in this stuff we talk about, um, so, yeah. sort of corrupts it. Yeah. Okay, um, real quick before we start, I, I just want to give you the opportunity. Um, you know, I don't necessarily have any personal boundaries. I don't, you know, the nature of these conversations, you never know where we end up. But I wanted to know in advance if you had any boundaries of things that make you uncomfortable or certain topic points. I'm pretty all, all open, actually. Uh, okay. People, um, and if something makes me uncomfortable, I would say it. So, yeah. Yeah. Are you, you're not recording. It's only me who is recording, right? Um, yeah, I'm not. I'm not recording. Um, I can record if you would like, but I'm personally not recording. No, I don't. I don't mind. The video will be with me anyway. So yeah, exactly. Anything you say, you kind of regret. We can always cut it out. No problem. Yeah. Cool. Okay. Yeah. Okay, let's go for it. I'm going to introduce myself and you, and then hopefully I'll do it right from the beginning. Yeah, now you're fine. No worries about retakes or anything like that. Yeah. Hey guys, welcome back to my channel. My name is Arbia Yunus, and this is another episode of my weekly podcast. Today, I have with me Christopher East, who's going to chat to us about his near-death experience. Christopher, you're hey. alive! <laughs> I am alive, in fact. <laughs> good to see you. How are you? Good to see you as well. I'm, I'm well. I'm hanging in there. How are you? Amazing. I'm good. I'm good. Um, I'm going to jump straight into it and ask you, could you please tell us a little bit about your near-death experience? How did that happen and what did you see? Yeah. Oh, man. The compli complicated question there. Uh, so the near-death experience, um, uh, it's a long story um, with lots of parts, but I'll, I'll conduce it down. Um, so... A lot of different things happened. My dad died. I gained a lot of weight, uh, developed a binge eating disorder, and then got cheated on. And in the process of the desperation of trying to lose that weight, I developed what is called, you know, eating disorder, not otherwise specified, or atypical bulimia, um, where I would binge eat. And instead of purging in, you know, the traditional formats, I abusively worked out but I also started taking chemicals to lose weight. Um, at first, stuff you could get from GNC or online legally. But then I started going to more extreme and more extreme measures. And eventually I started taking this chemical called DMP. Uh, DMP is used as a pesticide, as an explosive. But when ingested by the human body, it messes with your mitochondria and dramatically increases your metabolism. But the, the dangerous thing about DMP is that, you know, the effects scale with the dose and then there's no like feedback loop. And so the main byproduct of Ray's metabolism is heat. And so if you overdose, your body cooks itself alive. Um, so because of my eating disorder getting worse and worse, I, I kept on taking more and more of this chemical until one day I accidentally overdosed and nearly died. Um, yeah, so. That's crazy because one of the things I actually wrote down when I watched your video about your experience, I wanted to know if this drug was prescribed to you or where the hell did you get it? Because it didn't yeah. sound like something that is supposed to be out there. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. Uh <laughs> Uh, yeah, DMP uh, was like a fat burner that was popular in the 1920s, as a lot of illegal substances were popular back in the 1920s. 
Um, but a lot of people have died on it um, because it is really dangerous. And the um, so in pharmacology, there's this thing called the LD50, which is the dose that like um, a certain amount of people overdose on it and die. So it's like the minimum lethal dose. Um, so with other drugs, people overdose on like aspirin. The LD50 is is very high. You need to take a lot of a lot of other chemicals. Uh, the unfortunate thing about DMP is it takes it doesn't take a lot for you to overdose. Um, Do you know that when you were taking the drug? Yeah, so that's the crazy thing is um, I discovered it on shady bodybuilding forums. I was very into bodybuilding at the time. Uh, if you ever... <laughs> I've seen your photos. Yeah, <laughs> yeah um, if you ever want to get into the world of sketchy chemicals, man, shady bodybuilding forums are where it's at. But even in the bodybuilding community, um, it's a very stigmatized chemical because a lot of people do die. And so even, you know, even bodybuilders that are completely fine with taking steroids, even they are like, oh, I don't really think I want to take DMP. But I mean, that's the intrinsic nature of an eating disorder is you get so ingrained in the idea that um, the desperation to lose weight by any means possible, I, the whole time I knew the chemical could be life ending. I knew it was lethal. I knew people died from it. But you know, when when you have an eating disorder, you don't think clearly. Um, and you think you can be safe. And I was really meticulous. Uh, in fact, um, I took this chemical on and off for over a year and a half, and I was fine. Until one day, I wasn't. Um, I had DMP. The I, ironically, I was delirious. Um, a lot of the thing that's difficult is, I don't remember a lot leading up to the, the day I, I overdosed. So um, I remember taking my first dose and for some reason I took a second dose that same day, um, which you know nearly ended my life. But I don't remember why I took the second dose. I remember being kind of confused. I was- uh, For a long time? Um, yeah, I, 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 at that period I had, I had stopped and I was starting a new cycle, um, but I had been taking it on and off for a pretty long time, yeah like years or months um so the longest i ever took the chemical was maybe like a month and a half but my use of dmp was cyclical over a year and a half and the thing that sucks about um yeah fat burners are great and they work right but in the eating disorder context especially as someone who identifies primarily as a binge eater mm -hmm. is that you lose this weight with this dangerous chemical and that's great and then you cycle off and what happens? Uh, you haven't addressed the underlying eating disorder or your, your eating habits. Uh, so you gain the weight back. And of course, uh, you've developed this unhealthy codependence on the use of the fat burner. And so you get freaked out and then you go back on and it makes cycling off of the chemical really dangerous. One of the mindsets a lot of people have about DMP or fat burners in general is like, oh, I'll only take it for a week or I'll only take it to lose five pounds. But with the eating disorder mindset, right? Like you always have these set goals for yourself. And you're like, okay, when I hit that goal, I'll be happy. It's, or, never, <laughs> it's, it's never enough. And then um, the difficulty with other forms of eating disorders is like you eventually hit some kind of wall, right? Um, anorexia, um, it gets really difficult because the hunger builds and the hunger builds or with bulimia, uh, the damage through traditional methods of purging. Um, but the, there is no ceiling for DMP and that's what makes it really dangerous um, and why it kills people. Mm. So 
I wanted to jump into this, the, the experience, but now I want to ask you other questions. Yeah, of course. So, um, did you start this whole fitness journey when your dad died and all of these things happened to you? Or were you into fitness beforehand and then that pushed you over the edge? Um, yeah, that's a great question. It's an important piece of everything. Um, I, my whole, through elementary school, through middle school, I was bullied. I was bullied for a lot of different reasons. I was overweight, had long hair. Um, I've always been very in touch with my feminine side and I grew up in the Midwest of the United States. So I got bullied a lot because people thought I was gay and effeminate and I didn't fit in well. And it, it was tough. Um, I, it's funny because I've gone through so many other things in life in my adult years that I kind of forget how detrimental being bullied was. Um, but it sucked. Um, but I just, um, the summer between ninth grade, so in the U.S., um, you know, for me, middle school ended at eighth grade, high school started at ninth grade. And we had this summer program um, or summer school where you could take like, I don't know, classes to get out of the way. And I started taking weightlifting for football and I fell in love with it. Um, I fell in love with this ability to change my body and, and gain strength. And I, I just had a lot of fun with it. But one of the interesting side effects was, was when I came back into proper, when the, my ninth grade year started or high school started, I came back and all of a sudden I was like kind of built and um, I was respected. Different? Uh, huh? Everyone's reaction was different? Yeah, like, like literally overnight, I went from being bullied mercilessly all the time to being accepted. And so, which was entirely down to weightlifting and changing my physique and getting better at football, which meant I like my social status got better. I was never particularly popular, but I went from being picked on to being, you know, mildly respected. So I, I fell in love with weightlifting. I fell in love with changing my body. Um, uh, weightlifting saved me from getting bullied. So I was, I was such a big advocate of it and I fell in love with it. Um, I started taking a lot of substances uh, at, the, at the time from GNC. That was my first kind of diving into this idea of altering your body through ingesting chemicals, uh, which my mom was not a fan of. <laughs> Um, but then when I, my dad died that end of my junior year in high school, and it was a huge loss, he died from a sudden heart attack. And on my channel, I talk about why I blamed myself, but in short, I blamed myself for his death and it was a really hard loss. And all of a sudden I didn't care uh, about what I looked like. I, I didn't care about weights. I didn't care about anything. I just lost my dad. And, um, because I blamed myself and because it was such a huge loss, I turned to food. And I became a, a pretty horrific binge eater in the course of maybe six months. I gained a, a hundred pounds um, pretty aggressively. And so by, I was a hundred and I, I know uh, I want to be careful about weights. Um, I don't know. I'll, I'll just leave it to, I gained about a hundred pounds. We'll, we'll stick it with that. Yeah. Okay. So now we know that happened. You started taking the drug. What yep. happened? How did you end up in the hospital? You said that you forgot that you took one dose and then you took another one. And then yeah. what happened? Yeah, so I, I took the second dose. And um, so to give context, um, like 
it's such an exo. So metabolism releases three byproducts, right? It releases body heat, um, water, and CO2. That's a combustion reaction. Uh, so we breathe the CO2 out, we sweat the water out, or um, other or like other means in which we get rid of water, and then body heat. You know, we just have to expel that through our skin. Um, but when you overdose, so one of the most common ways people die on DMP is your your body literally cooks itself to death. Um, you your brain fries, your organs shut down. Uh, luckily, I was living with my brother-in-law at the time. And I was collapsed in the shower on its coldest setting because I was trying to regulate my body heat. And he immediately knew something was wrong. They called the paramedics. I was able to be um, answer like the basic questions and send them away. But then I lost consciousness again. And then they took me in the hospital. And I don't remember any of this. Um, this is all secondhand stories. They took me to the hospital. Um, DMP is illegal to consume. Um, I, at the time, I thought it was illegal to own. So I didn't tell, I would not tell the doctors what I was on. And I apparently, um, anyone who knows me, I'm pretty nice, but uh, I was a dick to all the hospital staff. I became combative to the point they put me in restraints. And at first, like my condition wasn't good and something was wrong, but it wasn't concerning. And then overnight, I went into respiratory failure, renal failure. My liver started shutting down um, and my body temperature was 105. Um, yeah. So, um, pretty quickly things went haywire. Um, and then they put me in a medically induced coma because I was being combative and my condition was really bad. So they advised my mom, like, Hey, like, we don't know what's going on. Um, things are really bad. We should probably place him in this medically induced coma. So his body can kind of focus on fighting what's going on. Um, but then I, it got to a point where they told my family I was probably going to die and they had no idea what was happening. Luckily, my brother, um, Matt, he knew I was on DMP and he was able to tell the doctors about it. And there's this experimental drug that it doesn't counteract the DMP, but it counteracts the, the hyperthermia, which is the excess body heat. And they put me on that. And after a while, I started to get better. But um, for roughly two and a half days, three days, um, you know, the doctors were pretty sure I was going to die. And that's the other thing that's difficult about DMP is uh, it's a poorly understood drug. And it is so rare that um, in one of my videos, I talk about um, with knife wounds or gunshot wounds or overdoses of more common drugs. Um, those are safer to some extent because they're trained, like with a knife wound, they're trained on how to deal with that. Or like an overdose of an opioid, there, there's drugs that exist that like the second you inject it into someone, they're fine. Um, but none of that exists for DMP. So um, for the most part, the doctors were pretty helpless at trying to do anything. Do you know what's the, like the saddest thing about this whole thing we're talking about? is that people are like not even aware of how much we put into our looks um, yeah. and we're willing like to damage like working out is supposed to be about you being healthy feeling good feeling like yourself being in the strongest body you can be in and i can totally relate to not the drug abuse side of it yeah. but like being obsessive and just beating yourself up to look good, to impress, to do the, all of that. But it could be 
all of these things could be easily avoided if we like work on the underlying issue and then we don't have to take all of this we don't have to like so many times i caught myself at the gym looking at people who look so perfect and i just hated myself because i didn't understand why was i not getting the same results i was working out even harder than them and yeah. only years later i was told that some of these people i was admiring they were taking drugs and suddenly you start understanding that many of the things that we see and we compare ourselves to isn't even natural which affects everyone not only the person who's taken them but everyone else yeah so, yeah that's that's same i think fascinating but tell me what happened throughout the time you were in coma yeah so um i it's weird because I don't have a lot of strong memories leading up to my overdose. And so my first strong memory was from when I was in a coma. Um, and just as context, because I get this question a lot, I, I don't have, I, I'm not really an, a vivid dreamer. Um, when I do have dreams, I, like they're abstract and I don't remember anything. Even after I immediately wake up, I'm like, I think I had a dream. I don't know. I couldn't tell you anything that happened. Um, so while I was in this coma, I came to this, the memory is um, I was in this white room. Uh, it was brightly white and it was lit. And the thing that was weird about the brightness that I remember is that there's no point source. And so a point source light is like, um, like a lighting fixture. Like you can tell where the light is emanating from and there's a directionality to the light. So think about like light streaming in through a window or you know a lamp or a ceiling light so there, there's this directionality to the, the light and there's shadows and there's some places that are more lit than others and and so on and so forth and so the weirdest thing about the room that initially struck me was that it was it was this global illumination that had no point source so there i couldn't tell where the light was coming from but it was a very brightly lit room which if you really stop to think about it that's a very strange thing um it, because in any other space, like, right, like the, the, you have this sense of where light is coming from or, or how the room is lit. So that was the first thing that jumped out at me. Uh, the next thing that jumped out at me was um, I was floating in air on my back and I was naked. Um, but my perspective was from someone standing um, behind me looking down across my body. Um, the really weird experience, though, was I didn't feel disconnected from my body. Like, I, I had this sense that I was still in the body, just my perspective wasn't from my eyes. It was looking at my body. And I've had other um, dissociative moments, either from trauma or psychedelics. And for me, every other time my viewpoint has dissociated from my body, I, too, as a conceptualization of who I am, it are also... Um, d dissociating from my body. And so it's the only time in my life that I've ever had a different viewpoint and still felt in my body. So that was weird, obviously, um, like looking down. And, uh, you know, the initial feeling was kind of of apathy, I guess, um, or, or I would rather just describe it as like the purest calm I can, I can describe, right? Like a, a, a lack of any feeling either way. Um, uh, maybe confusion, but I was just kind of laying there and just taking it in. 
And then the next thing I remember is a voice called out to me. And um, the voice said, will you ever do this to your body again? And so um, just to give, like, it was interesting because I didn't hear the voice, right? I experienced the voice. And the best analogy I can have for this is the voice you have in your head if you have an internal dialogue, right? Like, you're not really hearing your own voice in your head. You're experiencing the voice in your head. And much like the voice in my head, like if you stop to think about it, like I couldn't, my, the voice in my head doesn't have a gender, right? Like the voice isn't deep. It isn't low. I I couldn't tell you anything about the tonal qualities of the voice in my head. Like I'm experiencing a voice. I'm not hearing a voice. So I I couldn't tell you whether the voice I heard was male or female, um, whether the voice was deep or low, uh, what accent the voice had. Um, I just experienced these words. And when I experienced the words, I felt shame, um, not because the voice made me feel shameful, but I could tell something had happened. Uh, I had no perception I had overdosed. I had no perception that my life was in danger. I just knew I was in the room and I knew something was wrong. Um, so I remember feeling shameful and emotional. And all I said was, no, um, I, I won't. And um, another thing about the voice is, or the experience was, I felt the the presence of the voice. Um, and the way I describe it is like being submerged in water, right? Like it's this perception of it being all around you um, with no definitive, like, it wasn't like the voice was to my right or to my left or behind me or inside me. Like it felt external, but all around me, surrounding me. Um, and then after a moment passed, um, the voice said, okay, I'm sending you back now. And then I, I sat in the room for a second. And then the next thing I remember is waking up in the hospital room. Do you know what this reminds me of? I didn't have a near death experience, but I had a really strange experience about eight years ago. It was my second year in Ireland. And I used to live in a mansion that was owned by a company that I worked for. I didn't live there on my own. I lived there with a group of people. We all worked for the same company. And that specific day, the whole country got flooded because, you know, winter was very bad. And I don't know if you've ever worked in sales, but they have no hearts whatsoever. Like you are a slave. So that day, even though the whole country was flooded, we went to work. And just a few hours later, we had to go back because no one was out in the streets. And as we walked into the mansion, it was all uh, full of water. So we Mm -hmm. had to get buckets and start throwing the water out. At some point, I got really, really tired and I lived only with boys. So they continued working while I went to my room and I remember my mattress wasn't touched by the water. So I mm. thought, I'm just going to lie down for a second because I'm really tired. <laughs> and that moment, I lied down. I had no intention of sleeping. But what I remember is exactly what you described. I was looking at myself from mm. like a, a point like where it was above. Like so, somehow I saw my body from above. Yeah. And I remember that feeling of... I got so scared because I thought I was dying. Mm. One of the things that I noticed is that I could hear everything the guys were saying. They were in the kitchen. And yeah. 
if my room was really, really big, so if I actually was sleeping on my bed, there's no way I could make, make up what they were talking about, but I could hear everything. Mm. And the next moment I felt like, like I was like a wind or like air. And I moved to a different corner of the room, still looking at myself. And I remember at that moment, this crazy amount of fear that hit me because I realized that I was dead. And I said, oh God, please, no, no, no. And it's so ironic because I spent my whole life saying, I don't want to live here. This is disgusting. I want to die. Yeah. And then that moment, I just said, please, 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 I'm not ready yet. I don't want to go just yet. Please, God, don't let me die. And the next thing happened is I, I felt like I got shot back into my body. Mm. The fear that I felt, I've never experienced anything like it. But I don't think it's because I, was, I felt like I was out of my body. It's just knowing that I died. That's what scared me. So mm. you're describing there in being in that room and having that feeling of uh, like you're one with everything or like being comfortable where you're at. That was the first feeling I got when I saw myself. Mm. So it's not a very strange feeling to me. I've experienced it, but I think what you've experienced was something that you needed in order to see that there is a way out. Mm. Am I wrong? Like, do you think that you had to experience that to see that there's something else out there? Um, hmm. Interesting Maybe question. Maybe I confused you because there was like all over the place. <laughs> no, no, I, sorry. Um, your experience is interesting. So I'm, I'm trying to process that and, and take it in and see how I feel about it. Um, because it is a really interesting experience and the way they they're similar, but contrast is, is interesting to me because one of the things that really sticks out about this whole memory to me is that I've never dissociated like that in any other context. Um, like I've taken plenty in the years that followed, especially I'd taken, I've taken a lot of um, psychedelics and I've had trauma that's made me dissociate. But um, I've never dissociated in any other kind of context, um, at least soberly or in the realm of reality or figuratively reality here. Um, but I don't, I don't, and it's hard because I don't really know how I feel about everything. Um, I, I do feel like I met or experienced some higher thing. Um, um, but, you know, it's strange because sometimes people have these near-death experiences and they're just called to, like, religion or spirituality. Um, I've been called to, like, what I call my higher self or, like, a greater good. Um, and I believe in, this, in a, a, an idealized sense of, like, a greater good or, or general energy. But um, I don't know. For me, it's, it's been very confusing and tough to deal with I guess I, I, I actually don't know. heard you speaking about this and I really like because, because so many times people think if they think of like a higher um, um, I don't want to call it higher good uh, but like a source or God they think of like one thing either like I don't know Jesus or the God that Muslims believe in or Jewish yeah. people believe in and 
for me at least the way I see spirituality is like none of that is God. God is a source that created everything including every one of us. So mm. I don't see it as an entity kind of thing, but it's um, it's all of us, basically. It's me yeah. and it's this candle. That's God. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah. Um, so. Yeah, it's interesting. I also have people that are deeply religious in my life and their testimony and, and the way... It, it's hard because you know, as someone who spent a lot of time talking with people and working to understand their experiences and their emotions, um, you, you get this knack for understanding, like when people are being authentic or when they're being truthful. And so like with my mom or my best friend, when they talk about the relationships with a God that's defined as Jesus or as a God defined as like the Christian God, like it's so real for them and it's palpable and it, and it overcomes them. And it's ironic because I believe them so deeply, but it also feeds back into why I've never been particularly religious because, you know, even though I was raised in a religious household and I've had this near-death experience and I've attempted to connect with, you know, formalized or traditional forms of God, I've never had that relationship. I've never had that, you know, moment of connecting with God, even, you know, in my near-death experience. And I'm not saying that invalidates Christianity. Um, I, I just, for me, um, have never connected with Christianity or uh, Islam or Judaism or anything like that. Yeah, no, I, 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 I can relate to that. I don't believe in any religion because I feel that religions have this same light and bright side where they tell you, God loves you. But then on the other hand, God tells you, don't wear this, don't do this, don't do that. So like, I, I get the sense from religions that yes, there is a good side to them, but also there's a lot of guilt and shame that comes mm -hmm. from not being able to do all of these things that you are required to do in order to be a good person. Yeah. But I feel like whatever, wherever I'm at in spirituality is just, I feel like I don't need to do anything that isn't me and I don't need to pretend to be a good person. I know I am because I'm just me. So you don't have to be um, put in a box or to fit in a box in order to be accepted by the universe. Yeah. Right? And I mean, um, kind of on the other end, so the other part of my near-death experience was the things I experienced afterwards. Um, excuse me. So for a short time after I had very specific hallucinations or uh, visual experiences, we'll call them that, where people in my life that I knew had auras around them. And it was only around specific people that I knew well. Um, so my sister had a light blue. It made me feel very calm and comforted. My best friend, Daniel, uh, who's the one who's deeply religious, I'll never forget. He walked into my room and he had such a deep amber and I felt so safe. And the, like, like almost like a sort of like an angel feeling when he walked in the room, which was really overwhelming. Um, he's still one of my best friends. He's my childhood best friend to this day. And then my then girlfriend at the time who would become now my ex-fiance, but um, she had a brilliant gold around her. And it was the most beautiful thing I'd ever seen. 
I was our, a fun fact, um, our one month anniversary of dating was when I was the closest to dying. So she met my family in a little circle of my family and the doctor being like, yeah, he's probably going to die. And I always felt bad about that. I was like, that's an interesting way to meet your boyfriend's family. Yeah. But, but so I saw auras um, for a bit. And auras, like how big was the space around each person? I would say um, uh, like four or five inches from like the nearest piece of skin, right? Okay. And and it focused mainly around like the head and like the the central location of a person. And did it tell you anything about the person? So like you you say that you see like um, you felt different feelings around each person. Yeah, yeah. E- each aura was. Yeah, each aura was very much tied to a feeling and a perception of that person. Um, like, for instance, um, the light blue of my sister, like, and all my family had different ones. I, I don't strongly remember the other ones just because they're, um, you know, with my friend and my sister was the first person I saw when I woke up. So um, there was a very strong emotional thing there. And then my family was kind of in and out and I was in and out of being sedated. Um, My mom had a red. Um, My mom had a very angry red and she was very mad at me. Yeah, my mom was very pissed at me and very upset and had every right to be. Um, You know, I was talking about earlier, I got into like, chemicals through bodybuilding when I was young and my mom's been warning me for years of the dangers and um to put my mom in a situation because you know she's lost her husband um at that point six years prior and to nearly lose uh, her son do something so stupid I mean not that eating disorders are stupid but to take a chemical to lose weight I you know regardless of the reasons is is kind of foolhardy um and so she she was a red she was pissed (laughs) she was fire (laughs) yeah so how do you feel like this experience has changed you as a person yeah oh and one last um I, i think it's important into the broader sense um the other strong visual um thing that i saw was at night um I had these really disturbing and um, dark uh, visual things. So the DMP destroyed my body. Um, uh, I had no energy. So my body started cannibalizing my muscle. Ironically, the thing I had worked so hard to build. And so when I woke up and uh, the toll of the experience also caused a lot of atrophy and damage to my body. So when I woke up, I thought I was paralyzed I thought I was paralyzed because I was so weak, I couldn't move. Like I couldn't raise my hand. I couldn't turn my head. I couldn't wiggle my toes. Um, my body was decimated. And so, um, you know, I, I was so weak and it was such a juxtaposition because like the day before I was, or a few days before the last memory I have, I was like lifting weights and running six miles. And so to be bound in a body that I can't move, that's too weak, uh, was horrific. Um, but I was so weak that I, I, like I said, I couldn't turn my head. So at night I was in so much pain that I could just stare at the ceiling. And, um, one of the things that bothered me, my first memory was seeing my sister, but also being very confused why I was in the hospital room. Um, not just because I was like, why the fuck am I in the hospital? But I was confused why I wasn't in the room I was just in. Um, that was the first thought I had was 
why am I not in the white room? Um, also, the white room was egg shaped, which was interesting. So, like the inside of an egg. Did you feel uh, safe there? Yeah, I felt uh, mm, calm and and safe. Um, you didn't question why were you in that egg room? <laughs> no, I never really. I I remember thinking it was curious, but I didn't question it. Um, like it's sort of like when you're you don't really have the perception i didn't really have the perception whether i should or shouldn't be there like i just felt like that was the place i needed to be at in the time and i didn't really question it um but in the at night in the hospital room like it had such a dark energy to it and i had these really there was this like spider webbing cracks of red and black on the ceiling wall and i i felt really unsafe in the hospital and felt really bothered and um uh i i don't know it was it was dark and it was dark and it was uncomfortable and i i really wanted to run and i felt trapped and it was really overwhelming uh, also nearly dying is a very <laughs> emotional experience uh coming to terms with the fact i had overdosed was very confusing and them telling me i nearly died and at the time they thought there might be brain damage because of my body temperature and uh, they were unsure about my liver function, kidney function, and muscles. And they were like, dude, we, we have no idea what the future holds for you. We can't promise you anything. Um, so it was, it was very emotional. It was very overwhelming. Yeah, you've actually mentioned a few things that are interesting. Because you're not the first person to tell me um, about those visual, dark visual things. Mm -hmm. I have a friend who also has... Um, father passed away and he was in a, in a lot of pain and what he did is just sit in meditation for a long time throughout weeks and and i think what he what he describes it as it's like his third eye opened and he sure. started seeing a lot of things auras yes but also a lot of dark energy as well as the um, interesting visuals that are full of color and stuff like that. And also my sister has gone through a period where she started awakening spiritually and she also mentioned stuff like that. So yeah. I wonder is if because of that um, strong trauma that you went through, something happened there spiritually, who knows? Yeah. Um, how did you deal with just coming home from this experience because i know you said it was very heavy but what kind of thoughts did you experience yeah i don't know it's hard um you bring up i, I want to address an earlier the point you just brought up though is um you know i get a lot of questions you know people are skeptical of anything and that makes sense right like I, i'm skeptical um i i am deeply believe in deconstructing experiences be that hardship trauma whatever it is and the thing that makes this experience really hard for me to be skeptical about is like i said I, i've taken a lot of psychedelics and so you know one of the common skeptical questions is i was on sedatives afterwards and they're like oh you, like couldn't this just be a product of the medication they had you on or the medically induced coma and sure it could be um and i'm not against that idea but my experience with any kind of psychedelic or hallucinogen is that uh, everything gets affected by a psychedelic. Um, 
so auditory visual like all of reality feels detached and strange and so the weird thing about the my experience in the white room is it when i talk about it and when i remember it it feels like i'm describing something that happened to me um doesn't feel like a dream it doesn't feel like a fantasy it feels like uh like for instance on my channel i talk about my experiences with my ex-fiance um it feels just as real as that to me. It feels a lived thing. Um, and then with the aura and the thing I saw on the ceiling um, feels very real. And the, the thing that was really interesting is that, um, and why I don't really feel like it was the medication was because nothing else was affected. I, I didn't have auditory hallucinations. Um, other things in the room, I weren't halluc uh, like I wasn't hallucinating like people's faces didn't look weird or auras weren't around everyone or like the cracks weren't on anything but the ceiling. Um, so I, I guess my perception is that like, of course there could be some explanation. Um, but the strongest thing I'm willing to say in the form of like spirituality or any of this thing is that like, perhaps there's some aspect of being that close to death that increases this general, um, like awareness or this extra sensory kind of experience yeah interesting really interesting i actually really want to talk to you about uh, your uh, experience with your ex-fiance because that story is so like touching and <laughs> just the way you explained it as well and the awareness you have now regarding how things worked out between you at the time is so interesting yeah. Um, so I know that you mentioned that she had eating disorders. Yeah. And uh, anorexia specifically. Am I mm -hmm. right? Yeah. And she had self-harming behaviors. And you, um, I remember you saying that you kind of made, uh, you and her called her eating disorder or the character with the eating disorder, Anna. So yeah. you separated the person, which is your ex-fiance, from the person who has the eating disorder. So yeah. you kind of create So why did you do that? Oh, man. Uh, so there's a lot to unpack there. Um, so, you know, um, I had an eating disorder. I, I, this, is the, this all happened in 2015, my overdose. Um, so we're coming up on five and a half years. Um, I didn't realize I had an eating disorder, um, mainly because it was so atypical and because, you know, eating disorders are hard to identify in yourself and you want to tell yourself there are all these other things. And um, like most people, my eating disorder is a product of some greater trauma and greater issues. So I was always so... Uh, the, you know, blaming myself for the death of my dad um, and his loss and... Um, uh, so when I went about losing weight I felt like I needed to atone and punish. So, you know, I didn't approach losing weight in a way that was healthy. It needed to be aggressive and violent and I needed to suffer for my, my mistakes. Um, but so I didn't really realize I had an eating disorder. And uh, when I met my ex, she was doing really well. Um, she was an amazing individual. She was going places. Um, I didn't know she had previously had a bout of anorexia. She didn't tell me that um, until we were already dating. And so one of the difficult things that links back in nicely to my overdose is that my overdose um, 
me nearly dying on our one month anniversary uh, caused her to relapse into her anorexia and pretty severely. It, it, there was other stuff that caused her to relapse into anorexia, but um, you know, the first initial thing was also this happened right when she started school. So like literally during uh, like the second or third week of uh, her in college at a new university, she transferred schools um, you know, all this happens. So there's a lot going on at once. She collapses into her anorexia, the gang controlling agency. Um, and uh, we dated for three years. And over the course of two years, her anorexia got to the point where it was life threatening and she nearly died. Uh, she's also um, suicidal and self-harmed and all, all the fun things that come with that. Um, sorry, I don't may, mean to make light of it. Um, you know, that's just the way I cope. It comes um, in a package. It yeah, no. Um, it, it was horrible. It was awful. Um, and there was other stuff too, like with verbal and physical abuse and stuff like that. So it, it's hard because it's hard to tell, uh, talk about some of the trauma I experienced because yes, she did have an eating disorder and yes, she was suicidal, but there are other things. And so I'm always careful about telling this story because, you know, my experience is, is very unique and there's a lot of pieces at play. And this is by no means, you know, the story of what it's like to be engaged to someone with life-threatening anorexia, right? There's, there's other pieces. But um, you brought up the, the Anna thing. So um, it's difficult because what people don't maybe realize about anorexia or eating disorders in general is that they really start to dominate your personality and they start to dominate your choices. And the further she fell into her eating disorder, the more and more she became less like herself. Right. And then when she was having these, when you indulge in your eating disorder and when you let it dominate your mind, you, you kind of do become a different person um, as difficult as that is to accept and a coping strategy that you could use, even though I kind of um, talk about why it's not great, is personification. So um, you take your mental illness and you personify it into a separate entity uh, within inside yourself. So you conceptualize it away from yourself. And that, that initially is helpful because it allows you to detach from the idea that, you know, your eating disorder is a part of you. You conceptualize it into this separate entity that happens to reside within you, or I guess for me, reside in the woman that I love. And we we nicknamed it Anna. And so Anna became the representation. Like, uh, it was weird because like there'd be periods where I could tell, like I could see, um, I, I don't use her real name, but we'll call her Sarah. I could see Sarah leaving and Anna stepping in into, so like when you fall into eating disorder, like your eating disorder thoughts take dominance. And so when her eating disorder thoughts or self-harming behavior thoughts were taking dominance, um, that's, she was more Anna than she was Sarah. Right. And so um, it just got hard because in the very worst of it, there'd be months on end where like, I never saw Sarah. It was all almost always this person or this behavior of Anna. Do you know why this is a little bit disturbing to me? I, I wonder where did you get the idea of and not to criticize, like we're all learning yeah. all the time. I've been through worse stuff, but um, in the healing process, when we want to heal from anything, whether it's anorexia, bulimia, or uh, addictions in general, what we want to do is to 
um, integrate parts of ourselves that we don't necessarily like and yeah. start accepting them. But what you guys did is just creating like this separate entity and it's just always clashing with the person so it could never be integrated and it could never be healed because it's it's an outside thing i don't know if you uh, yeah that makes sense yeah. well because that uh, in my video I, um so initially right like why would you do that why would you separate um what mo what motivates that as a, a natural response so I can't really speak for why Sarah did it. Um, in my opinion, um, uh, her, it was an active choice. Yeah, at first, it was, it was sort of a joke, but then it became a coping strategy, right? Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, her anorexia was a product of severe trauma and wanting to, to die. So it was, it was suicide by anorexia, which is a very specific and painful and long-term suicide strategy um she was suicidal in other ways but um you know the primary reason for anorexia was punishment self-hate right um but having a self-hate inside of you that is so strong that you're going to starve yourself to death that's a very difficult thing to sit there and comprehend as a part of you mm -hmm. so i think a carp coping strategy is i think it's a little bit easier to just be like oh like that's not a part of who i am that's not me. That's this other thing that's infected me or possessed me or whatever it is. So initially, you know, I, that's my suspicion why she had Anna. For me, the reason I had Anna is, um, you know, like I said, my ex was verbally abusive and sometimes physically abusive and the stress, um, the stress of dealing with someone who is going into like eating disorders and all the things she were dealing with and self-harming and the the being when she was anna so that's the thing is like for me as a coping strategy it was easier to be like the person who's verbally abusing me and causing me all this heartache it's not the woman i love it's this this evil this you know a scapegoat of anna so the conceptualization of anna and was at least for me in the beginning a way to displace my feelings and of resentment and hurt towards my ex um to this other entity because one of the difficult things of being a caretaker is like in a normative and healthy relationship or maybe not even healthy but in a normative relationship um when someone says something that pisses you off or hurts your feelings um even if you don't want to deal with it in a healthy way like you can pull your emotions away or you can punish your partner or whatever unhealthy way or toxic way you want to deal with it but how do you deal with those emotions when your partner's life is on the line, mm -hmm. right? Um, how do you deal with those emotions when your, your resentment or anger will make their self-harming worse? Um, uh, how do you deal with that? Like, like literally it's life and death. And so for me, like all these awful things were happening to me either directly or indirectly. And it made it very hard to be a caretaker. It made it very hard to love her. It made it very hard to stay there and be supportive and keep her alive. And so eating disorders at the same time, didn't you? Huh? You, you were struggling with eating disorders too at the time or no? Yeah. I, well, uh, nearly dying had a, had uh, my eating disorders back and I, uh, all these other things, but nearly dying, um, has this amazing effect on you where it puts things into perspective. So for a while, my binge eating disorder and bulimia, 
excuse me, uh, went away. Unfortunately, um, there was a lot of codependency and a lot of us enabling each other. So um, my preferred uh, self-harm method and my preferred method of binging has always been abusively exercising. And uh, she abusively exercised as a, as, as a function of her anorexia. So we did that together um, and unfortunately un enabled things. And ironically, um, you put a binge eater together and an anorexic together and they make a really good combo because uh, she was always trying to put like remove more and more from her plate and I was always happy to eat it. So unfortunately, um, you know some overlap and some codependency there in our traumas yeah because that's one of the things that I could pick up on when you when I was listening to you speaking in your video because we always attract to us someone who has the same underlying issues like whether we're aware of it or not yeah um, sometimes people like would be with an abusive partner but they don't realize and like we we might um, we might put the blame on them, but we don't realize we also have toxic patterns that yeah. have attracted this person. And not only that, um, so, so many times we don't want to believe in what we see. So we create this other character for the person that we're with. It doesn't yeah. have to be necessarily like Anna. We could look at one person and see things that we don't like in them but we still try to make up stories no they didn't mean that they're yeah. much nicer than that we kind of are delusional when it comes to relationships when it comes to trauma as well yeah things for what they are um yeah because another really popular thing people do is trauma bonding right um when you've had a difficult life like you just want someone that understands it and i think one of the not everything's negative about it. I think one of the positives that could be negative is that, you know, I, I had struggled with profound self-hate and I had struggled with, um, at, at the point, um, you know, her traumas were way more than mine. Um, not that you should ever compare trauma, but, um, you know, it wasn't really until dealing with everything in that relationship where I had experienced true, true profound hardship. But, um, as far as like the body dysmorphia and eating disorder, even though our eating disorders were very different and very different monsters and a uh, way of going about it. Um, I, I had empathy and I had compassion and I understood it in a way that her family didn't. And I understood it in a way that like a normal person can't like until you experience the horrific thoughts of eating disorder and body dysmorphia and, and, fucked relationships with food like uh i don't know you can't really convey that to someone um you kind of have to go through it firsthand one of the things i was thinking about because i knew we were going to talk about is how little people know like they think that when you have an eating disorder is just about a bad relationship with food but it's really about bad relationship with yourself with yeah. the universe with life and it just eats away on like your brain and you can't function, you can't just think straight. It's just, it's just like this disease that's constantly playing games on you. It's just so weird. Yeah. Uh, one, of the, one of the things I think people, I, I, I work to try to educate people with, with eating disorders, right, is 
you know, it's like, okay, you, you just want to change your body or you want to be skinny or you want to be whatever. And sure, to some extent, that's true. But what I found is, uh, so I talk about how fitness is my favorite form of self-harm. One of the, one of the big reasons why I think that's true or why eating disorders develop is that you have these abstract um, experiences of suffering, right? Like if you've gone through trauma or you're sad or depressed or lost, right? That's an abstract thing. How do you measure that, right? Uh, how, do you, how do you measure your suffering? Um, there's no unit for it. Uh, there's, there's no scale. Um, it, it's this thing that's hopelessly intangible. But one of the things I discovered, it was that, you know, with my dad's death, I could very loosely and, um, you know, somewhat inaccurately be like, you know, my dad's death equated to 100 pounds of fat gained, right? And so, you know, that was something, right? Like in this, this intangible way of trying to, to measure his loss, I could say, you know, 100 pounds of fat I had gained. So I got into my brain that to process my dad's death would take losing 100 pounds, right? And so, you know, I set out to do that. And of course, it, that didn't help. But, you know, with self-harm, right? Like, how do I measure how much I should harm myself today? Or like, how do I measure how much I hate myself today? And the world of fitness and weight loss and numbers, like eating disorder is very focused on numbers and calories and intake. And I think the reason that is, is because it's, it is measurable, right? Like you can weigh yourself. And so I, I think the body is this amazing vehicle in which you can project the intangible experiences of the mind onto something that we can measure. Now, the, the difficulty is, is like, it's a shitty form of measuring and doesn't really mean anything, but at least then you, you associate it. And then, so for instance, like, I would be like, okay, I'm going to run, like, I hate myself today. And, you know, for this amount of hate is a 20 mile run or like a 60 mile bike ride or 3000 calories burned. Right. And so it was uh, this ability to take an abstracted idea and put it into the physical and measurable realm. And what better place to embody our suffering and things like this than our literal bodies. And also that's very interesting. You say that, but also it's because when you feel like all of your life is out of control, the only thing you actually can control is your body. Yeah, exactly. So it's just, it's just crazy. Where are you at now with, with this whole body dysmorphia? And oh, it, it's rough. Um, so um, about me for the last two and a half, my relationship ended two and a half years ago. And uh, there's a lot of stuff that even I don't talk about on my channel. But um, I, I fell into a really dark depression. And I've been struggling with suicidal ideation for the last two and a half years. Um, which is, is tough. Is that a guilt or is that, why, 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 was it because simply you had a breakup and you had feelings for the other person or is it a sense of guilt? Like, or is oh, it man. Um, all uh, of this stuff together? Uh, a lot of individual pieces, right? Um, dealing with life and death for eight months, um, every day I thought, today is the day she's going to die um, from either anorexia or taking her own life. Eight months, eight months of waking up in a panic to make sure she was still alive. Eight months of dealing with self-harm, eight months of watching her lose more and more and more and more weight. Um, eight months of that takes a toll. Um, 
And uh, it, it was taking so much of me and it was changing me and it was making me angry and bitter. Um, and it turned me into... A second. Huh? I'll stop you here because I remembered something. We actually, that's what I loved the most about mm. your video. It's when you said that somehow um, being there for her made you feel like you were a good person. Yeah. Like it's, it validated you. And I feel so many times, sometimes we don't even notice it when we're overly nice. And I, in the past, used to do that with people. I'd be super nice to them. I would go like, uh, I, I, I would do things that are above and beyond for them. Yeah. But I did them because I thought that was my nature. But no, mm -hmm. so many times we aren't even aware of that because sometimes it's in the family, sometimes it's in our genes. We try to make up for the fact that we feel maybe unlovable. So we try to do a little more for people so they would love us. And yeah. it's so, it so was amazing to hear you say that because not many people would admit it. Admit it, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, no, I mean, the, the reasons I stayed and the reasons I did all the things I did was, A, I loved her. Um, I was engaged to her. Like, I, I thought the world of her. And um, I had compassion for her struggles. And I got to know, uh, that was one of the big things, is that I spent so much time working to intimately understand the cause of everything, Right. And in that process, I, I gained admiration and respect and just and to some degree, despite all her struggles, like a profound respect. That's true. What's also true is I stayed because I like the narrative it said about me, right? Like, you know, how noble that I, I stayed um, with someone who is life and death and um, stayed by her side despite all the abuse and stayed there. And like, uh, like that story I could say about myself. Um, my life was falling apart at the time and I had no stunning accomplishments. I was struggling. I had failed out of college. I had just gone back to college after my overdose. Um, um, I, I was searching for meaning. I was searching for a sense of importance and staying there and staying by her side, despite all the good reasons, also somewhat toxically gave me this sense of importance that was really valuable. Um, also, you know, I, I got really, I fell in love with the idea of, you know, what I would be able to say after all of it was done, I kind of started thinking about it as like, you know, like this sucks and I don't really want to be in this, but like, you know, like how crazy would our relationship be if I, I stuck it through and she got better and all this stuff. So yeah, unfortunately, one thing people don't like to admit is that, you know, love is complicated and there are equally selfish and fucked up reasons for why we do the things we do just in the same breath, and I know that's a contradiction and people always want to resolve it to one or the other, but, you know, one of the things that was really tough for me and why I had a lot of guilt was this realize because there was periods where I, I loved her to the, the core of my being, but then I, I started to hate her as well and had a lot of anger towards her. And that contradiction of both feelings so extreme existing towards one person and the same person um, was a lot. It was overwhelming. That's so amazing you say that because with the time I got to learn that the more we do things that we don't really want to do, when we overgive, 
is because somehow we expect to get back and we when we don't get it back we get so angry and yeah. so frustrated and that turns into resentment but if we check with ourselves nobody bloody asked us to give anything <laughs> like yeah and i think this is a problem that many people who are empathic um because we're so misunderstood um and we're because we're extremely sensitive and we do have it in our nature like we want to help people we want to see them happy we so th there is a healthy balance there with wanting to see other people healthy and happy and it's a beautiful Definitely. thing but the toxic side of it is like when people are harming you but you still want to heal them why do you feel the need to do that that like need to be resolved for many yeah. people who are extremely sensitive yeah one of the other big things i talked about was i had a video where i was discussing why i longed and missed for my ex's eating disorder after our relationship ended and that that was a really fucked up and difficult feeling to come to terms with is i remember literally sitting there and just missing it missing the days where i thought she was going to die and, and the the craziness and the toxicity of it all and um I felt really like a bad per who would wish that like right like who would who would want to return to that and I came to this awareness that like um what I was really it's craving addictive. huh it's addictive it is addictive and that was a part of it but the the thing I craved more than anything is like when that relationship ended I had nothing right like um it took everything for me and then I didn't even have the relationship at that point I was in a depression and I was, what I was missing was the sense of importance and what I was craving was returning to anything that gave me a sense of importance. And one of the things I really strongly caution to people that have been traumatized is that sometimes you can latch on to your trauma for that sense of importance and you can kind of put it on this pedestal. Um, but I think that's ultimately kind of damaging. Yes. And so many times we're not even aware of that, but I could tell you like sometimes I would miss, the feeling of being sad and dark and I'm like where is that feeling of yeah. darkness I fucking love it but that's why I do my artwork because sometimes people ask me like you're so different they tell me you're so different from your photography I don't know if you've seen my photography but yeah. it's quite dark and people tell me like you're so different as a person and I tell them that's my dark side honey <laughs> that's where i feel like i get my dose of darkness and i yeah. feel like people who went through trauma you always have a little bit of that going on which is not too bad <laughs> I yeah. mean, you know how to manage it it's not too bad yeah definitely yeah it's definitely addictive and it's just i don't know i think that's what it is like when you live through that for a long time it becomes so familiar that you just don't want to let it go until you yeah. actually learn that there is a much better feeling that you better be addicted to <laughs> then you kind of switch it up <laughs> yeah definitely yeah mm. why get addicted to suffering if you could be addicted to happiness and going out and having fun yeah i mean yeah lesser of two evils definitely i think anytime you have an addiction to anything it, um takes away from the thing but yeah there's definitely way better things to be addicted to than suffering yeah and life and death situations so where are you i'm sorry i know this is taking so long my last no question. i can talk for i can talk for as long as you want um i'm having a good chat with you 
thank you. Um, likewise. So where are you at now with your eating disorders? Or I'm not going to call them your eating disorders because this is another thing people do when they have this kind of stuff is that they make it part of them. We don't want to separate it, but as a, a different entity, but also we don't want to take it as yours. So I'm just going to ask a question. Sorry, I'm just going crazy. So I'm going to ask the question <laughs> in a different way. Uh, where are you at? with experiencing yeah <laughs> i figured that's the way you were going to ask it um no that is a good point because i don't think you should separate it but i don't think you should tie it into your identity like uh, for me uh, personally i conceptualize myself as someone uh, i am christopher and i am someone who happens to be going through an eating disorder at the moment i am not my eating disorder um um so in progressively over the last two and a half years, I've been trying to save my life from suicidal ideation. Um, that's involved a lot of things, right? Um, quitting drugs, quitting casual sex and dating, uh, quitting toxic friendships, um, going to therapy, starting medication, um, these progressive things of trying to save my life. Um, it goes into this long thing, but basically I made this promise to myself and um, I, the the promise is I would end my life, but once I've done everything that I can. And so every time I feel suicidal, I sit down with myself and I said, okay, I made this promise where I'll let you kill yourself um, once you've done everything that you can. So have you done everything that you can? And in December of last year, I sat myself down and I said, I haven't quit fitness. Um, and fitness for me is my primary self-harming behavior and purging behavior. Um, it's the, the part that makes my binge eating disorder turn into atypical bulimia. And uh, uh, for the first time in nine years, I quit fitness entirely. Um, didn't cut back on it. Um, because for me, a lot of people can resonate with this, especially with anorexia, is that you get to this point um, where you want to be better. And uh, you to to even start being better, like you just can't engage with it at all, right? Like there's no like, okay, like I'll eat better or I'll eat healthier. For me, I couldn't work out without hating myself. I couldn't work out in a way that was healthy. I couldn't tone it back. Like it was when I was in the gym, either I couldn't work out at all or I, I had to rely on self-hate and harming myself. So I quit, uh, which was hard and overwhelming and a lot. Um, and I, I haven't gone longer than a month in nine years of my life working out and being very fit. Um, and I had an amazing physique and very lean and um, took a lot of time and effort and blood, sweat and tears went into that physique. So I quit when that was great. That was healthy. Um, but unfortunately, what that's allowed to do is one of the other reasons fitness was my favorite form of self-harm is because... Um, it held back my binge eating disorder, um, which is the primary thing I suffer with. And it's always tempered that and it's always, you know, held that at bay and held my body dysmorphia at bay because I've always been the level of fit that I wanted to be. Um, but now without fitness and without engaging with it at all, um, my binge eating disorder has wreaked havoc on my physique. And I've, I don't know, since December I've gained like 25, 30 pounds and uh, dealing with that's really difficult because in the past, you know, whenever I've gained weight, I just threw myself into self-harming with fitness and losing it rather quickly. I've never had to deal with eating healthily because I've always been very good at abusively working out. Um, 
And so now it's tough because I, I won't engage with my self-harming behavior, but I'm not quite ready to, to face my binge eating disorder. Um, you still binge? Yeah, no, I, I, I still, it's not always, it's tough because sometimes it's, it's binge in the, the traditional sense, but the bigger issue I have is making really poor choices around food, even if I'm not binging, right? Um, it's, it's always eating unhealthy. And the, the struggle I have is so far in my process of helping myself and trying to save my life, it's been removing things, right? Um, I remove drugs. I remove casual sex. I remove toxic friends. I remove fitness. But the, the thing that sucks about eating disorders is that you can't remove eating, um, uh, the way I always describe it is the reason I was able to quit drugs is because every morning I didn't have someone come in with a plate of various kinds of drugs and ask me, which one do you want to take today? And I had to make the healthy choice about the drug to consume. But every day I wake up and every day I'm hungry and every day I have to engage with the choice. Yeah. And so the difficult thing is, you know, I right now, I don't really like myself. There's a lot of reasons for that. That's a rather complex situation, but let's establish that I don't like myself. I'm, I'm to the point where I care about myself enough to not actively harm myself. So, you know, I, I don't want to hurt myself actively, but to make the choice to care for myself by making healthy decisions around food, that feels intolerable. And so the reasons I binge and the reasons I choose bad food is to not choose bad food and to not binge would mean I'm actively taking care of myself and loving myself. And that is uh, an uncomfortable feeling. Yeah, I, I understand. Um, for me, I managed to heal my eating disorders almost completely. There's always a little, a little thing there in the back of my head that um, makes me... Yes, I, I, now I allow myself to eat anything I want. Sure. And I don't feel guilty, but the thought still comes. So the past two days, I actually had um, a fitness goal that I wanted to do, like a shredding challenge for 14 days, and I finished it yesterday, and I felt really, really happy. But in the back of my head, I was like, mm, I wish I ate a little better because um, mm. For me, one of the things, as you said, you remove things when you're um, trying to heal something and you can't remove food. And for me, if I try to restrict my eating habits at all, I would go back into the old cycle. Yeah, so of course. I understand what you're saying. It's so hard to make, um, I don't want to even call them good choices because I don't believe in calling what we eat now is bad food. Yeah. Um, I try to look at it as, as if it all was good, but sometimes you know it's not as balanced and you wish you could balance it out, but it's hard. It's, it's, hard. it's, it's a constant, like you get to one level. It's like a video game, one level and then there's yeah. another level and then it's, ah, yeah. be alone. But I'm confident that you can get to a level of um, comfort with yourself that yes you might be annoyed even normal people who don't have eating disorders sometimes get annoyed because they ate too much cake so yeah. so i don't think we should be um like um, judging ourselves too much for having these thoughts 
yeah i mean i i think that so i don't believe in bad or good foods right like i don't think foods should have moral ideas around them i think what makes food bad or good um is not the calorie content or anything to do whether it's a burger or a salad I think the second food gains some kind of quality like that, because there are objective truths. Like if I gave you like a burger or a salad, there are objective truths about those things. Those, those one might be nutritionally better. One might be unhealthy for you because of things like saturated fats. Those, those things are true, but those things don't imply like a moral choice or moral character about the choice you make about those foods. Um, but for me, what, when food becomes self-harm or bad, is the the reasons and rationales and emotions in why you pick the food that you're picking. Um, it's one thing to like accidentally eat too much cake, that's fine. But it's another thing to just keep eating cake out of a place of self-hate in a way to validate and internalize the self-hate, right? That That's what makes a binge bad is because while you're binging, like you're actively working towards like reinforcing this idea uh, or whatever the reason you binge for me, it's this idea of self-hate and, and a lack of self-worth. And so, you know, for me, the food choices I make are bad or not because of the caloric content, but because I'm actively like not trying, like, because I'm, I don't want to care for myself. And I know that I know that while I'm making that choice. So what, what about actually allowing yourself to, to binge and choosing this time to love yourself through it? So I'm, I'm and hey, that's okay. I'm binging, but I'm gonna love you through it. I love you, even if I because what what so you're using um um self hatred, so you're using binge to um, get over self hatred. But if you keep going to the cycle of oh I hate myself, then I binge, then I hate myself for binging, then I binge some more. So it's a constant cycle and how yeah. do you break it? You just have to love yourself through it. So I binged, but this time I'm not going to hate myself. I'm going to choose to love myself through it. And then you binge again and then you love yourself through it. And then you keep going through those cycles until one day you don't feel the need to binge because you love yourself through it. Yeah. I, th I think that's interesting. I, I think as someone who was, formerly in an abusive relationship, that concept is a bit difficult for me. Um, one of the things, uh, one of the hard realizations is that uh, self-love when you have self-hate for me feels like being in an abusive relationship. So like to, and I'm not saying you're wrong. I think it's an interesting idea. I think the reason I would struggle with it is that it's, it's very similar, at least, you know, my initial feeling is like when my abuser would do things and I would be like, oh, I'm going to love you anyway, right? Like, you're going to harm me, but I'm going to sit there and, and say, like, love you through but, that. But it's not the food that's abusing you. It's you abusing yourself. Yeah, exactly. That's, no, totally. I, I completely agree. So, so for me I'm to bend. thing is that you love yourself instead of abusing yourself. And I know it sounds so stupid. If I could love myself, I would have fucking did, did it. I said, oh, I would have fucking done it. I mean, yeah. But well, I think I think to love yourself while you're doing an abusive behavior would be hard for me. It's hard for sure. Yeah, but definitely. Is it possible? I don't know. That's a that's an interesting quandary. Maybe. It is because I've done it. I used to binge 
and I would stand in front of the food and I would cry my heart out. And then when the shame shows up, I would say, I would, I'm going to choose not to be ashamed today because mm. I'm doing my best. And I'm going to love you for doing what you're doing because you're trying. And yeah. the more I did it, it took about a year and a half. And let me tell you that sight of cellulite on my belly just did not look good. I was mm -hmm. terrified when I looked in the mirror, but the more I worked through it and the more I chose every single time that when I do this behavior that I'm used to do, instead of beating myself up, I'm going to yeah. love myself and I'm going to forgive myself for doing it. It got to a point where I just I was so nice to myself that I didn't need to beat myself up anymore. Yeah, definitely. You know that makes sense. Yeah. Uh, I think I've worked a lot to like remove like the need for punishing and being angry with myself. So I think for me, like when I binge, there's just this calm acceptance of like the necessity of it at, in the moment and yeah. being, being fine with that. Uh, and, or in general, right? Like getting, for me, it's just like, being okay with the body dysmorphia and being okay with the weight gained and, and understanding that these things are temporary and understanding that like, you know, even though like one of the reasons I love my YouTube channel and one of the reasons I was able to quit my self-harming behavior is like for most of my life, the only value I had as a human being was my body. Right. Um, which obviously isn't true. Like there's other things, but at the time, uh, my physique and my body was like the only thing I attributed having value. And so, you know, when my YouTube channel started to do well, and since my YouTube channel is all about helping other people um, and trying to bring good into the world, like I finally had some measure of value that had nothing to do with my body and wasn't toxic and wasn't from a place of self-harm and from such genuine good. And and I was like, I was fine because I did that. I think that's an important thing is like, because I finally had something to latch onto that was so disconnected from anything toxic or my body. I was finally ready to, to quit my self-harming behavior and let my body go because I was like, you know, this isn't the only thing that's valuable about you. Yes. So does that allow you to find more self-love that you share this, your experiences with people? and that you're helping them throughout uh, sharing your, through sharing your stories? Um, mm, mm. <laughs> I, I'm really good. <laughs> so good at being self-deprecating. Um, yes, and mm, yes. Uh, it's, <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's a slow process because um, it's hard because for me, it's hard to accept that I'm actually doing good because that, that just triggers this feeling of like arrogancy or entitlement. Um, why and, being good is arrogant? I, that's a great question. Why, why, you know, it, why is it such an uncomfortable feeling or why is it so hard to accept, you know, like when people tell me that like my content helped them, like my first idea, the first thing that jumps in my head is like, oh, like that's not tr true or um, so it's just hard to accept it. And I, I think, you know, a part of that is like most of my life, uh, when I was younger, especially, right? Like I had to learn to accept that my life didn't have value in the eyes of my peers. 
And once you get into that place where you've accepted it and dealt with it and processed it and gotten comfortable with it, right? Or same with depression or any kind of negative thing. Um, it's a lot, I, I, I guess it's more advantageous to me to stay there than risk like potentially allowing myself to step out of that. Because I always have this fear that like the second I really like, for instance, like if someone were to tell me I was attractive, like, and I were to accept that and be like, okay, that's a true thing about me now. Like I, I, this funny image always plays in my head that someone would run up that second and be like, gotcha, bitch. Or like, no, like you're not at all. Uh, and I think, you know, that's partially stems from the trauma that I've had. Like one of the reasons, you know, my depression is so bad is, is chronic and progressively building trauma. Like every time in my life, I was like, okay, can't get worse than this. Uh, life came along and we're like, oh, <laughs> we got something new for you. Um, so I, I think, you know, once you've gone through re repetitive and chronic trauma, it's really, really hard to allow yourself to be happy because you have this progressive fear that like, okay, I've, I've been in the dark and I've been in the depression. I've been in this really awful place for so long. You know, I've just gotten comfortable with it. I, I, I don't want to be here, but I know how to be here. And I, and it's the juxtaposition of yeah. being going up and then being dragged back down by life but that's 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 the secret that's that's this amazing that you say this because that's when you start understanding that i am here because it's comfortable you have to start making a choice of yeah. being a little bit uncomfortable where you actually when someone tells you oh you look good today instead of pushing it back at them and not accepting that what if i like opened up a little bit and yeah. took that in it's very uncomfortable and i used to have it as well for my whole life i thought i was so ugly and people would laugh when i say this because i i, I normally take self-portraits yeah and people might struggle with believing that i believe that i was ugly because i take self-portraits but I think when you're so messed up, you find ways just, I think that was my way of putting a little bit of the pressure out. But with mm. that time, like I'm obviously older now. And when I look at my photos, when I was in my early twenties, I look at them and I, I think, how did I ever think that I was so ugly? Because now that I allow myself to accept those ideas, and when someone tells me you look good instead of saying, oh, no, 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 or having to feel like I need to tell them, no, you look great. Yeah. What about if I received it? What, if, what about if I allowed myself to feel something uncomfortable, but new? And what if I allowed myself to build new relationship with this new thing that I'm yeah. receiving? And the same thing when I was telling you about when you binge, instead of beating yourself up, what about if today you make a choice to love yourself? Yeah. Forgive yourself. I'm doing my best. I am doing my best. You know what? Maybe when you tell yourself that you're great, you can't really receive it. But what if you had a chat with yourself, look at yourself in the mirror and say, you know, I've been through all of this shit. And I'm still a decent person. Like I still want to help other people because that's the only way to get out of it. I have to do this all the time. And yeah. I've done it throughout 
few years now that I can tell you your life changes completely. And suddenly from this person who struggles with self-hatred and depression and just anger and all of these self-harming behaviors, you start looking at yourself in the mirror and think, oh, maybe I look better today than I ever looked in my life. And maybe yeah. it isn't true, but you, that's what you see because <laughs> you yeah. keep saying that to yourself. So you yeah. just have to break the habit. Definitely. Yeah. Um, I think one of the things I struggle with is that like, so profound trauma, you know, it, it destroys your conception of yourself and your conception of the world around you. Um, it brings you to this awareness of people's innate ca capacity to cause suffering. And um, that can be really overwhelming because all of a sudden you go from naivety to this really dark realization. You're like, oh man, life is not what I thought it was. Um, but one of the most difficult things about my trauma was I came into this very blinding and uncomfortable realization of my own innate capacity to cause suffering and act evilly. And so, you know, for myself, hey, it's like in the depths of my relationship, I, I twisted into a very awful person and said and did fucked up things. And so, you know, how do you, how do you reconcile um, that realization? Like, not only do you realize that there's bad in you, but that like when in the right circumstances, it can be profoundly bad and awful. Um, that's been a hard thing for me to reconcile with and then integrate back into my, my personhood or my identity. That's amazing that you say that because that's one of the biggest problems in society. We all have a darker side. Mm -hmm. and when you try to push it away so bad because you don't want to identify with it, you're pushing away part of yourself. Yeah. So that's what I was telling you earlier. We, we need to stop looking at ourselves like, I want to be a good person. And I can't have this part that is dark in me and I need to push it away. Instead of doing that, what about if I accept that I have this dark part of me, which is normal because all human beings have it, but instead of, because when you try to push it away, it's going to come out in a way that probably not very pleasant. But what if mm -hmm. I accepted that I have those feelings? I remember this one time. <laughs> I was on the bus and uh, this boy is sitting behind me and he didn't have a nice voice at all, shouting and singing. And I started imagining how I'm going to squeeze his face from the, from the window on the top of the bus. Do you know the small windows on the bus? Yeah. Like there's a big one, there's a small one. The and one that actually opens. Squeeze him and how I'm going to like smash his head. All this is going inside my head. And then he, sa he says, oh my God, I was singing so loud. I hope you guys um, didn't, um, didn't get annoyed. And I was thinking, I want to fucking kill you. But the woman beside me, she said, not at all. Your voice was beautiful. And I kind of felt a little bit ashamed of how aggressive I was in my head <laughs> towards the yeah. guy. But that, then again, we all have this part and it's okay. Yeah. It's okay. Because if I was trying to push that part away completely, I probably would have slapped his face. Who knows? But if you accept, 
that was a bad that was a bad example but you all heard it here first (laughs) (laughs) do not sing badly around her she'll come for you very bad example but i i think it is a good example because it it shows the like the the how sometimes in certain situations relatively like innocuous things can like dredge up rather dark or twisted weird fantasies that we indulge in and then we have this influx of guilt about it um but funny as well (laughs) one time i said i was uh, seeing this guy and I told him, do you know those moments when you like someone annoys you so much and you just want to push them off the stairs? He said, I never have these thoughts. Yeah. <laughs> like, you think, am I so twisted or is it normal? I'm sure you have them. Come on, guys. Everyone has them. Yeah. Well, I mean, also, I think uh, a part of those that don't tend to, to be a little bit less in tune with their surroundings. So I think you know, yeah. uh, from what you've told me, you seem very in tune with like the reasons why people are doing things and what's going around and how it's affecting people around you. And so like, I think some of the initial reaction is because you have a better understanding of why it's bothersome in the first place, right? Yeah. If, if, you're, if your head is up your ass and you're not paying attention, then like, of course, you're not going to have a strong reaction. Yeah. Yeah. He was a happy person. <laughs> 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 Nothing wrong with being happy, I guess. <laughs> Look, Chris, thank you so much. There's yeah, so of course. To talk about, I could, I wish I could ask you more questions, but I'm sure yeah. you will kick us uh, out pretty soon, actually, because we've been going on for a while. Let me see. Yeah, almost two hours. Yeah, no, it's a classic conversation for I, me. Yeah, I hope uh, that um, I'll probably bring you again if you don't yeah. mind sometime. Go for it. And I hope that you guys enjoyed this so far. Um, I will definitely bring you again. Um, please cool. don't forget to uh, like, subscribe, even though <laughs> Chris was saying earlier, I don't like asking people to like and subscribe because I don't want to look desperate. I said, I am desperate. Like, <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Check out Chris's um, Eastbound channel on YouTube. He talks about all of this stuff and all his content is so... Um, how do I describe that? Eye-opening, I would say. Yeah. Interesting and eye-opening. So, yeah. Is there anything you'd like to add? Um, no, I just appreciate having this opportunity to chat with you. Um, I have a lot of conversations with people, but not other uh, creators. So I think this was fun and interesting. I appreciate yeah. it. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thanks, guys.